All right. So let me just begin by giving you just a general question. What would you say is the main stereotype or the main misconception people have about Tibet? Well, it's not completely a misconception, but it's it's a it's a small part of the Tibetan story that often gets exaggerated to being the entire part, and that's the view that Tibetans are a, a profoundly mystical or spiritual uh, society, and that they've been massively oppressed uh, and are being um, uh, rendered uh, in- incapable by the current Chinese. Uh, government. That's partly true. Both of those are partly true. But they're, they're only part of the story. The Tibet's a very rich civilization and culture that has got an important, very important mystical tradition. But it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't dominate everybody's lives. And the Chinese government has a long history of extremely aggressive policies in Tibet. But again, some people manage to survive despite that quite effectively. And what is it like in Tibet now in terms of just how Tibetans live? I think we all imagine Tibetans living as yak herders or an extremely agricultural existence. But in fact, Tibet is quite modern. I wonder if you could describe what life is like in Tibet these days. 75% or perhaps more Tibetans still live in in the countryside, and and a, a large number, maybe a million or more of them are still yak herders, but the Chinese government has decided that nomadic herding should end in China, and it's moving most of these people to live in towns. Nobody's quite sure how they will survive once they are, are moved into towns. There is a lot of prosperity in, in, in the towns in Tibet now. The Chinese government in the last 20 years has poured massive amounts of money into as subsidies into these Tibetan towns to try and improve its political standing there. Uh, their, their flyovers and multi-story buildings and railways and, and all kinds of modern amenities. And there's now a very wealthy middle class of Tibetans living in towns, primarily people who work for the government. Um, but uh, so there's rapid change taking place. Uh, but still in the countryside, you can see villages and uh, monasteries that, that still have a very d- distinctive Tibetan feel to them. Is the push by the Chinese to move people into the cities, is that a way for the Chinese to try to erase that ancient culture? Not exactly. The Chinese have a very, very strong conviction that they're improving culture and improving Tibetans' past. They, 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 they thrive on this image hugely propagated in the Chinese media that Tibetans in the past were backward, feudal, slaves to the terrible lamas and the aristocrats and so forth. And, uh, and the Chinese feel that very strongly that they're on a mission to improve their lives. And, but the problem in that, apart from its this ra- radical simplification of the past I- is that China seems to have mainly just a single idea of what modernization and improvement could look like. And so it insists that this is urbanization. It's a sort of Chinese idea of modernity. The, the Chinese like Tibetan culture, but only certain parts of it. They like the singing and dancing. That's very much encouraged. They like the colorfulness and of Tibetan art and so on, but they're very, very tentative, very nervous about some aspects of Tibetan religion, and of course, very reactive against anything that suggests any kind of nationalism. So it's not that the Chinese feel they're destroying anything; they feel they're improving Chinese culture. It's just that they get to decide which parts of Tibetan culture should be improved and which should be discarded. And what is the effect then on the Tibetan culture? right now with this push to modernization? Are we losing?
losing some of that culture, that ancient culture? Well, it, it does vary a bit in different parts of Tibet. There are different sort of implementation uh, regimes of policy in the different areas according to local officials. Some are much more aggressive than others. But in central Tibet, the areas around Lhasa, for at least the last 30 or so years, it's been extremely aggressive. And there, there's no uh, tolerance for any kind of criticism of the government at all. And so people in those areas have become essentially quiescent. Nobody can dare to speak about any critical policy at all. Uh, And we do see quite a lot of Tibetan culture there left, but nobody's allowed to mention the Dalai Lama or express reverence or even respect for him, even if it's uh, secular and not religious. Uh, In the eastern parts of Tibet, there's a little bit more leeway in some areas, and we see Tibetans who are able to talk about certain issues of culture, but not really about politics. And overall, yeah, there's this huge fear among Tibetans, some of it justified, some of it maybe overstated uh, anticipation that their culture is dying out. And there is some evidence that this can be happening with language as China pushes more and more for people to speak and study and learn in Chinese language. There is a, a loss of Tibetan in the towns. It's still very strong in the countryside. So that it's not completely imaginary, the idea that there is a, a threat to Tibetan culture. Uh, and, and that could be a real problem in the next uh, 20, 30 years or so. There is a Tibetan diaspora in India and increasingly here in the United States. How is that diaspora keeping the language alive and keeping Tibetan culture alive, if it is? Well, the, the diaspora Tibetans, there's about 150,000 of them. They're a tiny percentage of the Tibetan population, about 3% of the 6 million or so Tibetans uh, who are mostly inside Tibet. They, they've been very active in terms of um, a political activity, in terms of mobilizing international support and so on. But in fact, they've suffered many of the same difficulties and challenges that Tibetans inside Tibet face. So in Tibet, it, they face it by force, and outside they face it from circumstance, which is a lot of Tib- younger Tibetans Uh, in the diaspora also losing their language, taking on English or the language of the host country they're in, India or maybe France or other European countries. Uh, And so they're suffering a a loss of their culture too, although you could say that that's voluntary. But culturally, they face their own problems, actually rather similar to Tibetans inside Tibet, loss of language uh, and so on, loss of knowledge of their past for some of them, the younger ones who are, especially those in the West, in America or or Europe. Um, they tend to learn more English than they learn Tibetan. Of course, they don't suffer these results by force. The Tibetans in, in Tibet don't really have any say over what language they learn in and so on. So there are problems for the culture in diaspora as well uh, as inside Tibet. And that's going to be a big problem as the, the, this problem moves forward, as Tibetans outside in the diaspora become more westernized or more Indianized, depending on where they're living. And that'll be a big problem. Why? Why would that be a big problem if they are such a small percentage of Tibetans? The the exiled Tibetans are hugely vocal. They're a kind of mouthpiece. They're the spokesman for the inside Tibetans. That's how they see themselves. And they, they have been that. It's been very difficult, actually, as a role, because most of them have no knowledge of, uh, of what's happening in Tibet in any depth. Uh, they, they ha- many of them haven't been there. Uh, or, or don't have deep opportunities to study the situation. So it's been a difficult situation when you're 
when you're the spokesperson or self-appointed spokesperson for a vast community that isn't really allowed to speak, and yet you don't really know its condition in detail. So that's always a, a, a difficulty. What we're going to see, I think, in the future is that the community inside Tibet, as it gains more confidence through the advent of social media and other ways of getting information is going to try and speak more directly to the outside world, perhaps in anonymized ways if it can. Um, and, and gradually the, the spokespersons for Tibet will become Tibetans from inside Tibet. That's slowly beginning to happen, but it may take a long time. And it will may be difficult for some of the exiles to, to quite adapt to that changed reality. And meanwhile, there seems to be a boom in tourism, in Chinese tourism, to Tibet. What's behind that? Well, China's main policy in Tibet is what it calls uh, grasping with two hands. One hand means control, what they call now stability, which is very aggressive. They're setting up major reorganization of the state, something we've never really seen in, in, in a Western country, I think, or at least not since the... The, the, the totalitarian era in, in the Soviet Union and uh, perhaps Germany during the war, uh, where you have complete control over the movement, almost over the thinking of every individual. You have such tight monitoring by carders and officials in every village and every block of every street that, that you can more or less know what people are doing at any time. So that's one side of the new Chinese state um, that's developing. But the, the other side of it is that, that there is a... There is a, a second hand of Chinese policy which they regard as development. They call it um, economic uh, growth and modernization, these different terms. And this is pouring money in and so on to, to create new businesses and a new urbanization. So China uh, thinks that it's going to win Tibetans over by increasing their incomes, by making them richer. And indeed, this could happen to some extent. Uh, but, uh, and I think there are signs that more Tibetans are getting wealthier and are therefore less inclined to protest. So the Chinese are hoping that that number is going to increase significantly to save them from uh, real problems that are, that are on the way, particularly when the Dalai Lama dies. But I think it's a race against time for the Chinese. They may not be able to pull this off, and they may never be able to make people forget about their own uh, national or religious um, heritage and, uh, and inclinations. And so they're encouraging tourism as a way to increase the wealth in Tibet and therefore quell any long-term protest. Yes, exactly. The, the Chinese have pushed, the, the Chinese have survived in Tibet partly through dominance by force, but also by economic boosting of the of the, the particularly the urban uh, economy there. And they've done that by pouring in money from outside. It's just a, a subsidy-driven wealth. Uh, they've tried to make that sustainable by increasing the local economy. The only way they've found to do that so far that helps Tibetans is tourism. So there's been massive mm -hmm. promotion of tourism. But it was, uh, ironically, because the, the Chinese are so terrified of foreigners being among those tourists in any significant numbers who might see an incident or talk to Tibetans, carry out information, almost all those tourists, I think I, think I worked out is 97, 95% of the 15 million or so tourists a year are domestic tourists from inland China. Um, and so they, they don't bring much benefit to the Tibetans, but they bring a lot of benefit to the Tibetan economy on paper. So China very much uh, encourages us to try to 
to try to give a picture of economic growth and prosperity inside Tibet. That's very important for the Chinese policy plan for the Tibetans. Well, I want to thank you very much. This was a fascinating interview. Robert Barnett is the director of the Modern Tibetan Studies Program at Columbia University. Thank you very much. And thank you.